The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh listeners. Um, this is Gia Zurina Wolf and Company Solicitors. Welcome to Inspire FM. This is the Ask Your Lawyer show. Um, I hope you're having an excellent Ramadan um, and I hope everyone's well and happy on this in this uh, glorious month. Listeners, last week, uh, those of you tuned in would have known that we did a special uh, show in relation to what happens at a police station. And today we've got a continuation of that and we're going to be discussing the frequently asked questions about what goes on a, on a court. We're going to be looking into legal aid, going to court, court bail, pleas, sentencing and everything in between. So if you've got a question that you want to uh, ask or if you want to ask any legal question, please do call in on 01582 481822. You can also WhatsApp us and text us on 0779 481822. Uh, you can actually uh, uh, email us or um, join in with our Facebook feed as well. Um, joining me today is the brilliant Kiara Maddox of Ch- Church Court. She's a friend of the show, she's been on before, and she's again here to offer her expert opinion. And a big thank you to you, Kiara, for taking your time out and coming to um, educate us on these matters. It's good to be here. Uh, there's a link on the uh, Facebook page of Inspire FM, um, which has got Kiara's uh, details on if you li- if you go to the link you can go and check her profile out um, and see what she's done i assure you um that each of my clients and and the lawyers that work with us will give good testimony about how brilliant kiara is and if you have got a case that you want to instruct her on go on to the uh, website and you can uh, instruct her directly if you want to alongside uh, uh, kiara is um, a friend of the show another friend of the show my colleague shaquille shah um who's uh and criminal lawyer and an immigration expert at Wolf and Co Solicitors. Like I said, Shaquille has been on the show before, so those who do regularly tune in, I'm sure you're familiar uh, with him. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to go into today's show and we're going to reset the scenario that we set last week. Um, like I said, a person has a fight in a car park. Um, he has a fight with three people and gets arrested for assault. ABH and a GBH and now he's been charged with assault ABH and a GBH and I'm going to ask Kiara and uh, Shaquille to explain what those offences to you are in due course. So um, if we start with you Kiara, one of the most frequent questions that w- those who haven't been to court with will probably want to know what is a charge? Um, what does charging mean? Okay well what used to happen is um, the police would be investigating an offence and they would then charge you at the police station. The charge would have to contain um, what it is that they are accusing you of. So firstly the name of the offence, also briefly setting out the particulars, so on what day and what they're suggesting happened, very very briefly, and also give you a time and date to attend court. Um, What's happening more and more often now is that the police are releasing people under investigation as opposed to charging them immediately for offences and that's really a cost-saving measure. So what individuals are finding is they're getting more postal requisitions as opposed to immediate charge from police stations and that will be a letter that will come to your home address um, which again should state the nature of the charge and the particulars and also give you a date to attend court. What's important is both a charge, so the police telling you, but also okay. a postal requisition, which would be a letter to your home address. Um, when they give you the date to attend court, you must attend court on that date. And if you don't, the magistrate's court, which is where you'd be requisitioned to, because that's where your first appearance will be, okay. um, they can choose to 
um, effectively have you arrested because you would then be in breach of the, the postal requisition or the charge. Um, and if that's the case, of course, you could then potentially remain in custody um, depending on the outcome of your case. So it's really important. Postal requisition or charge, get in contact with the solicitor and make sure that you attend on the date and time that's said. So is it very similar to a summons in, in reality, a postal requisition? Yes, yeah? okay. pretty much identical. It's, it's, it's just the newer way of doing things since, since about 2011, I think. Okay. Uh, thank you for that, um, Chiara. Shaquille, I've been postal requisitioned or I've been charged and I've been sent to court. Um, I want to find a lawyer. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk, I want to think about funding. Okay. Everyone okay. talks about it. I want you to tell me what is legal aid? What is legal aid? So funding, there's two types of funding. Yeah. Either you pay privately or you apply for legal aid. Mm -hmm. So legal aid is uh, legal aid agencies, a government department, which funds some or all of the solicitor's fee if you're eligible for it. So when someone is charged with an offence, then they can apply for legal aid, which is obviously mean tested. They have to show their finances and they have to show their savings and everything. And if they meet the threshold, and also it's interest of justice criteria, if they meet both criteria. Okay, yeah. if, I, if I take you to that um, financial means criteria, what kind of things will they be looking into? They look at your income mm -hmm. and your savings. And they also offerings and incomes and saving comes. And what about property? And the property is also included in well, property just in the UK or abroad as well. Uh, you have to enclose all the properties wherever it is, even if it's abroad, even if it's a piece of land or any property. Would they look into your um, bank accounts? Uh, look at how much money you've got. Things like that. Yeah, they do look into bank accounts, and obviously, we always advise our clients to be honest about their savings and the money coming into account because they have access to bank accounts. They can verify whether the information is provided correctly. What about stocks and shares and stuff like that? You have to enclose all the stocks, shares, and now you have to enclose if you have any digital currency like bitcoins and uh, stuff like that. Will they look into my family's income, like my wife's, my spouse's? Um, Yes, if, if you are married or if you are cohabiting with your partner, they would need her to sign the legal aid form and also provide her income and uh, evidence of what she has in terms of property and uh, savings or any shares, any any other uh, money at home. Right, okay. Uh, and the, the second uh, thing that you've mentioned, the interest of justice, what's that? So the interest of justice is always, uh, it is dependent on the seriousness of the offence. Mm -hmm. If the offence is of serious nature, say it's a, it's a, it's, it's a serious offence and complex offence. And also if, if it's in the interest of justice to uh, prosecute and also if, if the person is, usually if the, the offence carries a prisonable sentence, then you are eligible for legal aid. In some circumstances, if a person is vulnerable or if a person is not mentally well, then they could get representation through legal aid. What about youth? Uh, youths will always get legal aid because youths are not working and they are all dependent on their parents, but their the parents don't have to fund their fees if they're youths. Fine. What about, what, what's a contribution order, Shaquille? People sometimes so ask about contribution some, some of the cases, if, if you do meet both criteria, but you have some of the income, so they, um, you have to pay some of the fees to, to, to the legal aid agency. So they assess your means. They say you have a bit of money left over from your income. You have to pay some towards your fee, which you'll have to pay to legal aid agency, and then they pay to the solicitors. So some of the cases, we, our clients do get uh, contribution notices, which is up to £900 a month until the case goes on. 
Right. Okay, that sounds pretty expensive. Um, and what happens if you say win your case, Shakil? Do you, do, do you, like if uh, you've made a contribution and, and you got not found not guilty? If you got found not guilty, acquitted of the case, then uh, the legal aid pays the contribution back to you. Okay. Any contribution paid is is funded back to you. However, if you get legal aid and you don't pay anything towards it, you don't get anything back. Right. And what about private funding? How how do they? How would a firm? like estimate how much a person would have to pay what kind of things do they consider when they when they so uh, first thing they consider how what's the seriousness of the offense then they consider how much evidence is in terms of pages and how many witnesses are involved how many defendants are involved and uh, how long this case could be is it a crown court case or magistrate's court case and is it the person pleading guilty or not guilty that makes a huge difference in fees. And do you think that there's a cha- there's a difference in how much somebody will get paid if if obviously if you get someone very senior like a Kiara or or if you get someone more junior, is there a discrepancy in fees? Would you presumably you'd have to uh, the fees advocates fee is pretty much same unless you are a Queen's Council, which are paid quite highly and they they have to extend the legal aid certificate. But I mean, in the sense of a private. In the private funding, yeah, private funding it depends on the year of call and experience, and also the availability of counsel as well. Okay, okay, uh, Kiara, just going back to you. So you, you mentioned that um, the first port of call that you'd be sent to, or the, the, you'd go to, is the uh, magistrates' court. Yes. Um, so the magistrates' court. Um, you get magistrates sitting there as opposed to judges, is that correct, or do you get judges as well? Well, you get magistrates, which are members of the public who choose to come and sit and volunteer their time, um, and they usually sit on sit on panels of three, okay. can be down to two. Um, and you also have district judges that sit at the magistrates' court. These yeah. are legally qualified professionals. Um, so, for example, if you're a solicitor or barrister and have been in practice for seven years, you could apply to be a district judge. Okay. Um, so the more complicated cases generally at the, at the magistrates court tend to go before a district judge. And uh, um, you mentioned that the uh, magistrates themselves, they're not actually legally qualified. So how do they uh, uh, stick to the rules? How do they know what to do inside a court? How, how, how are things refereed? Should I so say? I believe magistrates have a certain amount of training before they start. Mm-hmm. Um, but they will also have a, a legal advisor who would be a qualified legal professional who will sit to advise them on matters of law. They are effectively the arbiters of the facts. Um, and my understanding is that they have to follow the recommendation, the legal recommend, recommendation of their legal advisor. So they will be told the parameters from which they are allowed to make their factual observations because they'll be told what the the law is in relation to whatever it is they have to dis- decide upon. Okay. And, and uh, do magistrates have the same powers as judges if they're dealing with a case, I mean? They would do at the magistrates' court. But, yeah. of course, the powers of magistrates' courts are capped. Okay. Because um, magistrates' court can only give sentence up to six months. Um, however, there that is qualified. There are circumstances in which case in which a magistrate can sentence someone to twelve months in prison, um, if, for example, they're two other either way offences. Um, but that will require some explanation as to what the magistrates' court can deal with. Okay, we we'll, we'll go into either way offences and things like that okay. in a second. Uh, Shaquille, can anybody uh, be a magistrate? So, yes, anyone can be a magistrate. Are there any qualifying criteria that you know? Uh, well, do, you, do you, have you, to have a criminal? you wouldn't be allowed to sit if you had a criminal conviction. 
Okay, so yeah. they look into those kind of things, CRB checks yeah. and stuff like that. But otherwise, anybody in general? Yeah, and, and what they're really hoping to do is actually increase the diversity of magistrate benches because it tends to be, as you see with judges, um, it tends to be a very certain demographic, usually an older white male. Um, and what they're very keen to do is get younger people or people from ethnic minority groups to sit on magistrates benches because of course they'll have a wealth of experience that perhaps other people are denied of so I mean if anyone is considering applying for a magistrate um, don't be put off there are really no barriers to um, to being able to do that I think the the minimum age is 18 and I believe the maximum age is 70 but within that anybody can apply Uh, well you've that's I was going to actually get onto it to be honest with you just as an aside um Kiara's mentioned that the uh, they are looking for magistrates and if any of our listeners are thinking about it there is a website that you can go on I'll try to post a link later um they're looking for people from all aspects of life all walks of life like I said there are a couple of things I think they do look into your finances that you can't have uh, um, CCJs and stuff like that and Kiara's mentioned the criminal record but if you are thinking of becoming a magistrate and you're from a uh, uh Bain background um do look into it i think it is very rewarding there's one or two days a month that you have to give up it might be even less than that it is a very, we do need representation across the board so um please do look into that um the magistrates they only operate in the magistrates court isn't that correct uh, uh yeah. shakil yeah they don't they don't operate in any, any other courts no, no? okay uh, and in terms of um, just remembering that I've been a, uh, charged with assault, ABH and GBH. I'm just using myself as an example. Um, what would happen to my case in the in the magistrate's court, considering I've been charged with those three offences? So what would happen after you've received your summons or your post requisition yeah. or you've been sent directly from the police station? You will attend for your what's called a first appearance. Yeah. Um, that is the first opportunity that you have to enter a plea to these offences, but also it's to try and work out which track your case belongs to. So, for example, if you were just at court for the common assault matter, which is a summary-only offence, you would have been dealt with exclusively at the magistrate's court. Um, What you've been charged with in that example is the common assault, which is a summary Mm offence, the ABH, which is an either-way offence, which means it can be dealt with at the magistrate's court or it can be dealt with at the Crown Court, depending on how serious that is, and also a GBH, grievous bodily harm, which is a Section 18 offence. Okay. Um, that is an indictable offence, so it can only be dealt with at the Crown Court. So tell me what a sum- summary offence is then. So you're... a summary only offence is, for example, common assault. Uh, most driving offences tend to be summary only. Uh, a lot of health and safety offences are summary only. These mean that they can only be dealt with at the magistrate's court by either a, a lay bench or a district judge. Um, if you're... Um, charged with a summary on offence, the maximum sentence that you can receive is six months. Mm. Um, that would be the same if you were charged with five or six summary only offences, the maximum sentence you could receive would only be six months. There is, however, and this is particularly relevant with health and safety offences, food, food hygiene offences, um, there is an unlimited fine that can be sent um, directed at the magistrate's court. So you might find yourself with a £20 million fine, for example, wow. at the magistrate's court. Um, but as I said, they are capped in terms of the sentence that they can they can give you. And there has been discussion, actually, about taking away custodial sentences at the magistrate's court entirely. Um, I don't know if that's going to come into fruition anytime soon, but um, it's something that they are looking into. Wouldn't that just mean that everything that they wanted to deal with in the magistrate's court, they just send upstairs to be dealt with at the Crown Court so people could get custodial Yeah, sentences. I imagine that was it. Either way, offences would probably go straight up to the Crown Court. 
um, in, in the majority of circumstances. I don't really see how that's workable. Mm. I think this is a, a reflection on short prison sentences and how they actually can cause more harm than good. Um, but it would be interesting to see how that worked in practice. Right, okay. Uh, what is that either way offence? What's that either way, either way, either way offence? What's one of them? Um, so an either way offence means that it can be dealt with at the magistrate's court or it can go up to the Crown Court. Um, so you have a choice always to be tried by a jury of your peers if it's an either way offence. Um, you can also choose to have it dealt with at the magistrate's court. Um, if that's the case, then the magistrates would make a decision based on the seriousness of the offence as to whether they think they have adequate sentencing powers there or whether they have to send it up to the Crown Court. Um, with an either way offence... It's six months maximum if you're sentenced to the magistrate's court. If there are two either way offences, the magistrates can give you six months consecutively for each offence. Mm -hmm. So it could be a maximum of 12 months for an either way of offence. Now, a perfect example of an either way offence is theft. Yeah. So, for example, if it's a shoplifting of a five pound box of chocolates, the likelihood is it will be dealt with at the magistrate's court. You have the choice to elect jury trial. So you're not stuck at the magistrate's court if you want to go up to be judged by a jury of your peers. Um, for example, if it's a theft of, let's say, a million pounds, mm. of course, that will always go up to the Crown Court. I would I would think anything over a theft over about ten thousand pounds would automatically go up to the uh, go up to the Crown Court. Okay. Um, if I, don't know, I think you did briefly touch upon it, if the magistrates say, "Look, listen, um, we can keep this case in the magistrates' court if we can deal with it." You said something about electing. What What yeah. is that? So that means you have a choice about whether your um, trial is heard at the Magistrates Court or the Crown Court. One of the cornerstones of the English justice system is that you have a right to be tried by 12 of your peers. So that's what a jury is made up of, 12 individual members of the public that are picked at random. Um, just to give you some idea, th these are quite old figures, so I don't, I don't want to kind of scare any of your listeners but the magistrates court conviction rate probably sits at between 85 and 90 percent whereas the conviction rate of the crown court is probably closer to 50 okay so there might be some incentive you might think in people deciding to go up to the crown court um as shaquille touched upon with legal aid and the contributions that could have quite a significant impact on how much it ends up costing you long term though so that's something that you might want to consider so other than the conviction rate, is there any other reason why you would want to elect to go to the Crown Court or want your case to go there? Well, I mean, there's also, it'll be dealt with by a judge, yeah. who of course, it, you're guaranteed then to have a legal professional who's going to be making the decisions that impact on your case. Um, and again, it's just the idea that you'd then be judged by jury members who you think might have slightly more life experience akin to yours mm. so it would be the average person on the street as opposed to potentially magistrates that you know as i've already indicated might not be entirely representative of your particular community or your age group or or something like that do you think it's fair to say that the evidence gets uh, examined a bit more at the uh, crown court and that the rules are abided by a bit more or stringently followed in the crown court or is that unfair to say no i think that's that's probably fair to say i mean things do um the the magistrates court can sometimes be described slightly as a, a wild west <laughs> okay. um you know they have a huge volume of work that comes in um they are working incredibly hard to try and get through a number of cases every day it might be sometimes the prosecution teams there are very overworked and it might be that certain things get overlooked whereas as soon as it goes up to the crown court you have longer in which to prepare um it will go to a dedicated caseworker and um, there are more rules of disclosure or people will follow disclosure 
a bit more stringently. Disclosure means that there's evidence that you think might help your case. The prosecution have a duty to, to serve that on you to help you either undermine the prosecution case or to support the defence case. Um, so, you know, that, that those are the benefits in terms of going up. Of course, the longer that people have to prepare a case equally, um, you might find that the evidence against you starts to stack up as soon as you go up to the Crown Court. And do you think there's any disadvantages of going to the Crown Court as opposed to staying in the Magistrates Court? Well, the disadvantages, as I said, financial potentially, because if you're paying for legal aid contributions at the Crown Court and waiting for your trial to come in, you might find yourself paying contributions for well over a year. Wow. Um, equally, the sentencing at the Crown Court... Significant. Yeah, it opens up because, as, as I've already stated, there's a cap on the sentence that you can receive on either way offences at Magistrates Court. Having said that, even if you're convicted at the Magistrates Court, if they feel that their sentencing powers aren't sufficient, they can commit it up to the Crown Court for sentence. So just because you have your trial at the Magistrates Court, it doesn't mean that you'll be sentenced there. That's a matter for the sentencing bench after your conviction. So you could literally have a trial thinking, oh, I'm going to stay in the Magistrates Court, have it all done and dusted. And when it comes to sentence, they could say, no, we're going to send it up. Well, I'm, I'm sure that your legal advisor would have warned you of the risks. But <laughs> um, yeah, I would, I would hate for your listeners to think that just because they've had the trial at the Magistrates Court, they'd be capped at, at that sentence. Right. Shaquille, thank you for that, Kiara. Um, Shaquille, what is uh, indictable offence? What types of offences are there and where do they get dealt with? So indictable offences are the most serious and co- of the complex nature. So say like murder, attempted murder, GBH or rape, these are the common uh, um, indictable offences. And they always usually get dealt in Crown Court because magistrates, they don't want to touch it. They say it's not in our powers. We're just sending it up. Sometimes they just like send it up without taking any plea. Okay. And most of the time is that they just get sent up. They get sent up automatically. And talking about pleas, um, I'm going to take it, I'm going to... Change the scenario a bit. If I was just had the assault, Kiara, and if I pled guilty, what would happen? Um, if it was a common assault and you'd entered a guilty plea at the first available opportunity, you would have got a full third credit from any sentence you'd otherwise receive. Um, if you're of good character, never been in trouble before, the likelihood is the matter would be adjourned off for a pre-sentence report. Uh, that means that you'd speak to the probation service who would assess you, your lifestyle, uh, the reason behind your offending, and they would make a recommendation to the court for sentence. Um, so that would be, we think that this is somebody who would comply with the terms of a community order, for example, um, and then hopefully any sentencing bench would be inclined to follow that recommendation. And if you plead guilty straight away, how long do these take cases, a simple case like that, take to sort like finish? Well, I mean, if you plead on the day, it used to be that every case would go off for three weeks for the a probation service to prepare the reports. They now do what are called stand-down reports, which means that you'll be interviewed within court opening times and be sentenced at the end of the day. So for something like a common assault where you've never been in trouble for, there's yeah. no mental health issues or addiction issues that need to be looked into, um, the likelihood is these days you could probably all be sentenced and done dusted in a day. Right. And what would happen, though, if I pled not guilty? So if you entered a not guilty plea, um, the matter on, on a summary-only offence yep. would um, be set down for trial. Um, so you would be given a trial date at some point in the future, maybe within two or three months. Yeah, Is that um, the average time it takes, yeah? 
Yeah, I mean, it's improved again. There was there was a time when you were looking for six or seven months in advance, even for summary-only offences at the magistrate's wow. court. And obviously it depends on the complexity of your case. If you only need a couple of hours, you're going to get a slot quicker. If it looks like it's a case that requires the whole day, for example, you have numerous witnesses, um, then it would be something that would perhaps mean that it would go off for a greater t- period of time. Okay, um, so it would be set for trial, and and then who would represent you in a trial at the magistrate's court on a simple matter like this? Shaquille, is it solicitors or barristers, or can you choose? Uh, usually, in magistrate's court, solicitors represent clients, and but sometimes, if if they need advocates, they can also instruct counsel as well. But usually, it's solicitors' work in magistrate's court. Okay, and then, but who prepares your case? Uh, the solicitor's job is to prepare the case. And to make client understand what the evidence is, what the offence is, what's the likely sentence, and what's the str- strength and weakness of the case, mm. and um, they prepare the full case from start to end and liaise with all parties, like police, any other parties, if they need to get any witness statements from any other witnesses from defence, or if they need any experts on this case, say psychiatrist experts or any telephone experts and stuff like that. So tell us about typical case preparation, how long it takes, what you start with. What's the first thing that you do with your client if you met them in a, for a magistrate's court assault case? What would you do with them? So what we do is usually we get given disclosure, which we go through with the client and then we take the instructions. So Taking first, instructions meaning asking them asking what Asking them what happened, their side of the story. So usually it starts off with that and then we obviously build up our case on the points they give us. Then we explain and elaborate on it and then we help them obviously make the, obviously we help them to um, prepare the case. And also if they have, a, we draft their defence in legal terms. So they want to put in the court's language what they want to say. Okay, and then what? What if they need interpreters and things like that? Do you yeah, arrange we, that for them? We usually, you sit with if clients? it's a court hearing, we with the court arranges it for them. And if we see them and we they speak different language, we instruct an interpreter, and they can come in and sit sit down with us when we speak to client. Okay, um, listeners, I'm going to come back after the break, uh, where we'll be carrying on and talking about what happens in the Crown Court, and just <coughs> finishing off with Shaquille. Assalamualaikum. Assalamu alaikum, this is Atif Nawaz and you're listening to an Inspire FM podcast. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Listeners, welcome back to the show. You're listening to Ask Your Lawyer on Inspire FM 105.1. Um, if you've got any questions for us, it's 01582481. 822 on the telephone, or you can WhatsApp us on 0779-481-822. I'm still here with my uh, colleagues, uh, Chiara Maddox from Church Court Chambers and Shaquille uh, Shah from Wolf & Company Solicitors. And just before the break, we were talking to Shaquille uh, about what what the typical day for a solicitor is. Just one last question to tie that all up, uh, Shaquille. Even in the magistrate's court, if you've got a case there, can you instruct a barrister to go to your magistrate's court and to yes. represent you at the court, yeah? Yes, you can, yeah. So what would happen? Would it be generally that the solicitor would still prepare the case? and yeah. then the Yes, oh. so solicitor would still prepare the case and give all the full file to the barrister, including the brief to counsel, which obviously have full case summary and the full instructions, which will help the barrister to see which way the case were prepared and then they can take over. Right, brilliant. Uh, Kiara, um, let's take the scenario one step further now. Um, Like like you've said, 
Um, this case involves a GBH, and I think we mentioned that it wouldn't be tried in the magistrate's court, mm-hmm. it would be sent to the Crown Court. What's the first thing that would happen? What, what's, a, uh, what's a PTPH? Okay, so P- PTPH is Plea and Trial Preparation Hearing. Mm. Um, it used to be called a PCMH. Some people might recognise that as the acronym. Um, but it's your first appearance at the Crown Court. Um, so after you've left the magistrate's court, you, it's usually a date, a month in the, in the future, mm-hmm. um, you will have hopefully spoken um, in more detail to your instru- instructing solicitor um, and they would have uh, instructed a counsel, a barrister to come and represent you at that hearing. Um, you should arrive at court half, hour, half an hour earlier than your anticipated hearing time, uh, which should give you some time to have a further conference with the barrister that's been instructed to represent you. Um, They will go through the brief again with you and confirm your instructions. Mm. Uh, They will advise you on the strengths and weaknesses of the Crown's case against you. Just, I'm going to ask a quick question here, just and we'll carry on um, about the PTPH. At that point in time, how much of the evidence in the case would you have? Would you have all of the evidence in the case that's against you or, or not? No, you won't. Um, You would hope by that point you have to have the indictment, which is the formal charge against the individual. Um, So that will have what you're charged with and the particulars of the offence. You should also have the case summary, which you would have also been served with at the magistrate's court, which sets out briefly what they say the evidence is going to be at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, And you should also have a series of initial witness statements, uh, perhaps exhibits in the case. Sometimes you're very lucky. the, The police have done a very good job in getting the material to the Crown Prosecution Service in time for it to be uploaded. On more complicated cases which involve CCTV, numerous witnesses, further disclosure from third parties, uh, it's very unlikely that you'll have that by the first hearing at the Crown Court. Okay, so um, assuming that this is a normal case and you've got uh, uh, some bits and bobs of or enough for you to have a discussion and make a plea, um, you've said that you, you get to sit with your uh, lawyers and you, and you have a talk about it. and then what happens next? Do you, do, you, do you enter a plea on that day? Yep. So once you've been advised on um, the strength of the evidence, credit for guilty plea, sentencing options, etc., you will be called into court. Um, The indictment will be put to you, so the charge will be put to you again, and you have the opportunity to enter guilty or not guilty. Right. Um, And what what happens after that? Do they set any time limits and stuff like that? Do they give you my trial date? So if you've pleaded guilty... Yeah. Um, you will then see the probation service most likely and go through the same sentencing process that you would have had at the magistrate's court. Mm-hmm. If you've entered a not guilty plea, then the um, the hearing will then all cover the um, setting down trial dates, for example. So you'll get a trial date, which will be at some point in the future, either in what's called a warned list or a fixture. If it's going to be a short case with relatively few witnesses and no complications, it will most likely now go into what's called a warned list, which means that it could come in at any point during a two-week window. So you'll get given the first date. If it doesn't make that date, you have to remain in contact with your solicitor. Um, But you'll also get certain stage dates. So you have stage one, which is the time that the prosecution have to serve the final case against you. Um, Well, what they're saying is going to be the final case against you. Uh, That will be a month after your plea and trial preparation hearing. Uh, A month after that, you have to serve what's called a defence statement. So this is stage two. That sets out the nature of your defence for the prosecution. Um, These are mandatory in as much as it it can be held against you if you don't serve one. Okay. Um, You will also have to notify the Crown and the Court of your witness requirements at this point. Okay. What goes into a defence case statement? So, 
the defence statement has evolved significantly in recent years. You never used to have to be able to tell the prosecution what your case was as as being part of the defence. You then had to put in a document which just had to have a very brief skeletal explanation of what you were going to say at trial. Now, um, to be uh, compliant with the rules, you have to address the majority of the prosecution's case against you. So this document should be relatively detailed. Um, and it would, for example, in the explanation that you've given of mm. the uh, offences against the person, if, for example, you were running self-defence, that's something that you would go into quite specific detail in that document. Okay. Uh, and so uh, st- you say that's one of the stages that I've got to uh, abide by. Um, what else can they sort out um, in this? I've heard this issue of bad character. What's bad character? So bad character can be um, used against a defendant or indeed a non-defendant in proceedings. Um, And generally what it means is if you have a previous conviction for a similar offence, in its most basic of terms, the prosecution can make an application to have that put before the jury in your trial. Um, The most common ways that the prosecution are allowed to do that, because it's an application that has to be made to the judge, is through what's called propensity, mm-hmm. which means that, for example, if you're being charged with the Section 18 wounding and you have been in trouble for that before, the the judge might say, well, look, there, there might be similarities that the jury can use to help make their decision in the trial, in your current trial. Um, if the other, one of the most common ways that it gets through is when you attack somebody else's character. Okay. So, for example, if you were to come along for your trial, for Section 18 trial, and say, well, that bloke, he's got loads of previous for gun offences, for example, yeah, um, that would mean you lose your shield and okay. the prosecution can then ask you questions about your previous conviction. Okay, what if I just said, look, they're a liar and they're they're telling fibs all the time and stuff like that? Would that allow them to attack me? Um, well, if you're calling them a liar, per se, and say they tell fibs all the time, then yes, that would be losing your shield because you're besmirching their good character. Okay. Um, having said that, if they're to do specifically with the facts of the case, so for example, you're running self-defence and saying, look, he tried to punch me first, yeah. that wouldn't necessarily engage right. that, that gateway. And and what what would be the disadvantage in that, accusing someone and calling them a liar, X, Y, Z, if I had no bad character, if I was of good character, would I be all right then? Yeah, then, then go for it. Yeah, um, yeah th- then there would be no... If you've got nothing that the prosecution could use against you, then you can be as outrageous as you want to in the yeah. accusations that you make, really. I suppose that's one of the massive advantages of having a good uh, character, isn't it, Shaquille? Yeah. Yeah, you, you can essentially say and do whatever you need to. Um, you mentioned defences, Kiara. Um, I'm going to take GB, I'm going to take the GBH. Just explain the GBH offence and then tell us what defences there are in the GBH. So uh, GBH is grievous bodily harm. Um, so actually, this is divided into two subcategories itself. You have uh, Section 20, which is wounding, and Section 18, which is wounding with intent. Yeah. Obviously, if you have the intent to cause someone that much injury, it's much more serious, and the sentencing guidelines uh, are much harsher than they would be for a Section 20. I actually find a lot of people eventually end up pleading to a Section 20 when they're charged with a Section 18. To avoid the sentences. To avoid the higher sentences. Um, so uh, there are numerous defences that you could run for... A, a section uh, 18 defense so for example you say that it's um self-defense yeah so that you're acting in the, t- 
the defense of yourself or another um, that you'd come under attack by somebody else so you had to do that um, I mean there's also as with all cases mistaken identity yeah. so for example if this is that you've been arrested after an incident in a nightclub and you're arrested the next day one of your defenses lines of defense could be look it wasn't me you'll have yeah. to prove that um, yeah so I mean they're just general offenses like, like yeah that. you mentioned self-defense um, it, there's there's, there's uh, I know that in when you're raising self-defense as a, as a defense for yourself what do you what can be self team to self-defense how far can you go without somebody saying look listen you've gone over the top or can you do whatever you want essentially as long as you're defending yourself no it has to be reasonable and proportionate okay so you know for example if someone were to um, slap you around the face and you stabbed them that very likely wouldn't wouldn't cut it for self-defense. Um, so it has to be uh, uh, reasonable um, okay. in the face of immediate danger. Oh. Um, so, for example, if someone would have a baseball bat with them and started beating you and you picked up uh, a knife and stabbed them, that's closer to potentially what you could say you're acting self-defense. It's, it's a reasonable and proportionate use of force in response. Awesome. And just to um, close bad character off, going back to that, um, what would be the effect of what would be the real effect if if I if I had a previous conviction for a similar thing to say GBH or a violent offence? What would be the real term effect if they said, right, your bad character is going into the trial? Well, so in the example that we've raised of self defence, yeah, um, if the jury had that information in front of them before, say for example, you've got several offences for different varying levels of violence, they might actually think, well, this is somebody who turns to violence more often than yeah. not to solve a problem. So they might be less inclined to believe that you were the victim in that. They think that you're more likely to be the person who would have started it. Would that be automatically fatal to my defence, though, or is it... It wouldn't. I mean, it would very much def depend on the circumstances of the case. I mean, if you had a witness who turned up for the defence and said, I saw the other guy going in... To, to hit him with a stick, for example, yeah. then obviously the jury would have to weigh that in the balance. So it would just be part of the evidence against you. What the prosecution can't do is bolster a weak case by getting in mm, bad, bad character. Okay. So, I mean, the judge has to make a determination. It's something that would be argued before him and that he'd have to consider. Oh, so it would always be an application and argument between the two parties, yeah? Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, special measures. Um, what are special measures, Kiara? So special measures are for victims who are deemed to be vulnerable or who would benefit from um, having some assistance in terms of giving evidence. So, for example, there's some automatic categories that, um, uh, that get special measures automatically, um, and that would be victims of sexual assault, uh, where a weapon has been used in the commission of the offence, or if someone is a child or indeed has mental health problems. Okay. These are special measures. And, and what these can include are either giving evidence via video link in the case of young children. I think that's preferable than getting yeah. them into a courtroom because of the formality of the situation. Um, it could be giving evidence behind a screen in court. So, I mean, these are all ways that they're trying to encourage complainants to come, to come to court okay and do you think they work i mean you've done plenty of trials in your life do, do you think they hinder defendant or do they what's the general effect what's your opinion well it's just becoming more and more common so it used to be i mean domestic violence cases for example almost automatically get a screen um and i think that what's most important is that you have a strong judicial direction 
So they tell the jury, look, this is now common standard practice in most of these kinds of cases. It's just to help the victim or the complainant give, you know, the best evidence that they can. Please don't hold it against the defendant. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, as a defence advocate, would I rather we, that we didn't necessarily have them? Yes. I think sometimes, actually, it helps the situation for the defence because what you don't want is a complainant who sat there terrified and crying because that mm. looks terrible in front of a jury. So if they're comfortable in giving their evidence, sometimes as a defence advocate, you're in a better place to cross-examine them properly. Other than uh, video link, what other special measures can you get? Um, so as I said, you could have screens. Okay. Yeah. yeah so that would mean that the, the the person would be in court, but they would be blocked off. The jury could see them, the advocates could see them, the judge could see them, but the defendant wouldn't be able to see them. Right. Excellent. So those are special measures. Um, I've heard this t- t- term that you've spoken about, right? expert witnesses. Shaquille mentioned it. Shaquille, what is an expert witness in a case? So expert witnesses are usually the person of the expert in the field. Say if we need a psychiatrist, if our client has a psychiatrist problem or mental health issue, then we can instruct a psychiatrist that is an expert. Or if there is a telephone, mobile phone involved and we need cell site experts or someone who needs to tell us about what is in the data. So we can use those experts and also we can um, we can also get handwriting experts as well. So in all every field, there are some experts which can be very useful in the defense, preparing the defense case or to use it against the prosecution case to prove their case wrong. Right, Carol, would you need an expert only in the circumstance where the, where the prosecuting authority have an expert or sometimes do we get our own experts and instruct them to do our own things? Yeah, very often it's defence-led, actually, especially, you know, in this example, you've got grievous bodily harm, so you want to know you're saying an injury happened a particular way yeah. and obviously the prosecution's case that it happened an entirely different way. It might help the jury to have an expert say, actually, it's more likely it happened way A than way B. Or um, for them to just uh, perhaps give uh, uh, their view on what type or nature of the injury. So, you know, in terms of whether um, it's been accurately charged as Section 18 or whether actually it's something that wouldn't have passed that threshold for the charging decision. Yeah, but uh, some would say, look, Kiara, you've been through hundreds of trials now. Yeah, Shaquille's prepared hundreds of trials himself. Um, You guys should be knowledgeable enough to give opinions on these kind of things. Why can't you just give it? Why do we need an expert? Well, we're not allowed to give evidence. So anything the um, barristers say during the course of their trial is not evidence in the case. Mm. So they can ask questions, they can cross-examine, but none of that is relevant. So why can't a normal person, say, give an expert opinion, I'm saying? Does it have to be someone qualified in their in their own field to be able to give it and do they have to prove their credentials as well they do so what they'll do is they'll prepare a very detailed witness statement mm-hmm. about the first five or six pages of that generally tends to be a witness uh, so an expert witness setting out their professional qualifications and um, where the case relies exclusively on expert evidence so for example baby shaking cases yeah. you will have someone who's taken through their qualifications at great length do you get to cross-examine them? You do, yeah. Um, there's a slightly different art to cross-examining expert witnesses because you're taking them through an expert report. Um, what you would also hopefully have then is an expert of your own. So you will have had a conference with your own expert and you'll be able to understand what that contrary expert is saying in a bit more detail. Shaquille, how do you, how do you secure an expert? How do you find an expert? How do you secure them? Who pays for them? So the, if the case is funded by legal aid, we usually apply for extend, extending legal aid certificate, which covers the costs of the, uh, so the expert. So to expert, we usually go to experts' directories 
or if we check in the field of the speciality, like what area they specialize in and do they fit to our case. Right. So you always see the case and then we need the particular expert who can advise us. And then we obviously, uh, once we instruct them, then uh, they draft the report if they need to see the client or if they need to see the evidence. So it's usually funded by legal aid. Right. And then what happens if the report it doesn't actually support your case, guys? What do you do with that report? <clears throat> you don't serve it. <laughs> and that, that, that's the way it works in court, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you're under you're under no obligation to serve material that's obviously going to undermine your own case as the defence. The prosecution have an ongoing duty to actually serve anything that might help you out as a defendant. Yeah. But yeah, so if you were to, ob to obtain an expert report and find that it's actually very detrimental to your own case, then you wouldn't serve it, you wouldn't rely on it. Okay, okay. Um, you, I think I will ask you now, actually. No, I'll ask you later. Um, let's move on to ju juries when you're in the Crown Court. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, you're going to go to trial. What is a jury? So a jury is a panel of 12 members of your peers. That's the language they use, which means 12 members of the public have been selected at random to come and sit on the jury to judge the facts of the case. So the, the law is dealt with by the judge. Yeah. Um, but the... Um, the jury are there to exclusively deal with the facts. So they will be told by the, the judge how to apply the law and they have to follow what the judge says. But in everything else, they are the people who make the decision. Is it, is it a bit random, though, that you're trusting 12 strangers to be listening into the case? Wonder, sometimes these things go on for ages. How do we know that it's all working? Well, you've got to trust the jury system, I think, because what's most important is that you do have the opportunity to have Joe Public come and, and sit on your case because there are so many people who are out of touch with real life because mm. you, you live in an almost rarefied atmosphere of kind of being caught every day and you become desensitised. Whereas what's great about having 12 members of the public is that they bring their own personal experience to the case. Right. And, and that, that can be very useful to people so for example drugs cases if you're a young person who potentially was running possession as opposed to possession with intense supply you probably want members of the public who might have that that viewpoint okay i'm going to stop you there for a second i think we've got a caller calling in and i'm just going to put him on the line uh alaikum. hi guess hello there this is thomas mcgarvey guess i just had a question in relation to expert reports if that's okay oh uh, yeah go ahead thomas um, sometimes, in my experience, you get a report um, that has um, something very unhelpful, but also has something quite helpful. Um, has uh, Ms. Maddox come across experiences where um, she's had to perhaps serve a report that on one level she didn't want to serve, but, but, but perhaps because there was other information that she wanted to put before the jury, um, she had to serve that report in any event? So it's actually very interesting that you asked that question, Thomas, because I have this ongoing dilemma currently. Okay. Uh, in a case and it's a balancing exercise and I'll be honest it's it's an incredibly dis difficult decision to make and I do think it's, it goes on a case-by-case -case basis I think you have to weigh up the positive that you're going to get from it with the negative um, yeah. yeah and it's, it's a judgment and that's why fundamentally people instruct barristers because we have a wealth of experience we've worked on a number of cases and you would hope that over that time you would have built up enough judgment to see what's going to be in the best interest of your client and would you would you discuss the decision with your with your client before you served anything uh, uh, well fu fundamentally it's always going to be a matter for them you can advise yeah. um but it will always come yeah. down to what the client wishes to do mr mcgarvey i think you wanted to say something sorry I no it was just uh, i had an example a similar example where um prosecution said that my client's dna was on packaging for some drugs 
and actually when they went back and checked it um, the expert said that it wasn't on packaging but it seems to have been transferred from somewhere and it was transferred from another exhibit so his, his dna was on an exhibit just not as damning as the exhibit that they said it was so right. we kind of had to take the benefit of it being less um evidential but it was still evidence against my client but thank you very much that's right listeners i should just say thomas mcgarvey is actually another brilliant barrister from church court chambers and a very good friend of ours uh, thomas thank you for the, the call as always <laughs> thanks thanks for the call man thank you um brilliant yeah so that's an interesting point isn't it yeah this dilemma that you've got and whether you should serve it or not yeah i suppose things get really hairy at that point okay um what's the role of the judge then you've told us about what the role of the jury is what's the role of the judge um so as i said the judge makes the decision in of, of law um so we've spoken about bad character for example there are n- numerous applications that come up during the course of a trial bad character hearsay mm-hmm. and the judge will make the rulings on preliminary issues that are relevant to trial um but also then um explain to the jury firstly their role uh, the procedures that they must follow but also at the end of it he sums up the law which they have to follow and also his interpretation of the facts which they don't have to follow but so he's the person who effectively runs and manages the case um, and he will be the person who's ultimately responsible for sentencing. Okay. Or they, uh, he or she, <laughs> they. <laughs> yeah, true, true, it's he or she, isn't it? Um, in relation to what happens during a trial, what just to give us a general outline of how things work, who goes on first, what's the first thing that happens? Is it jury gets called in or impaneled, is it? What's yep, that? so they, what they do is they will identify a jury yeah. uh, and panel them, which again, so it's meant to be at random. So for a jury of 12, you would hope to have at least 14 people to pick from. Um, they will then be sworn and they will be put in charge of the case, which means that they are now effectively, they're told about what the charge is, um, and they're told that they will then have to return a verdict at the end of of the trial process. Um, The prosecution will then open the case, so they open on the facts as they see it. So again, that's not evidence in the the trial. It's just a speech, yeah? Yeah, a lot of defendants get panicky around that time because they start hearing all things that they think, well, that's not true, that didn't happen. That's just the prosecution interpretation. And actually let them, because sometimes it ends up causing them quite a lot of trouble because they can't end up proving what they say. Um, They then call their prosecution witnesses. They will go first. The the defence then get a chance to cross-examine those witnesses. It then gets to the close of the prosecution case. And then the defence will give evidence. So the defendant will choose to give evidence or not. He has the right right to remain silent. It may be used against him. I'm sure everyone's heard the spiel before. Um, And also any defence witnesses. So whether they be... normal defence witnesses or expert defence witnesses and then at the close of the case the prosecution and defence both have a chance to make closing speeches and the judge will sum up the facts and law to the jury. Kiara you mentioned that the prosecution makes speeches do you get to make a speech? So the defence get to make a speech at the end as does prosecution and in fact the defence in certain circumstances can make a speech at the beginning of the case after the prosecutor opens their case. Um, there used to be certain rules about when that could happen. There is a slight relaxing of it. I had a case in Luton Crown Court, actually, where I was asked by the judge. Um, I wanted the prosecution to say something in their opening about what our defence was. The prosecution didn't want to. And the judge said, well, Miss Maddox, this is your opportunity. So I stood up and gave um, gave an opening speech as well. My client was acquitted, and it might have been because the jury had at the front of their mind at the start exactly what the defendant was saying. So they were always thinking in the back of their minds, how does this apply to what the defence is saying? But but who who knows? And, and it is, it's a very rare circumstance. So um, don't be surprised when your barrister doesn't jump to their feet after the opening of the case. 
What's cross-examination and what's uh, examination-in-chief? We've only got 60 seconds left, so we're going to have yeah. to be quick. So examination-in-chief is where the um, barrister will take you through the case. Um, so that's your opportunity to tell your side of the story. Uh, cross-examination is when the opposing barrister asks you questions. That's when they're trying to catch you out generally or to put their case, so whether the prosecution are putting their case or the defence are putting their case. So, um, and, and those questions, the answers should be shorter. Are you allowed to take on any paperwork if you're a defendant into onto the stand to remember what you've said? And stuff you're like not. That? Unlike prosecution witnesses who are allowed to refresh their memories from their statements, uh, defendants are not entitled to do that, rather unfairly, I think. Well, there you are. Um, listeners, I hope that you've gleaned some information from that. I certainly have. Kiara, Church Court Chambers, Kiara Maddox, if you go onto the, um, our Facebook page, you can get the link. Shaquille from Wolf & Co. Solicitors, I thank you both. Jazakallah, Asalaamu Alaikum, tune in next week. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at Inspire FM Luton.